Hello, gentle listeners. This is Lex from the Peony. Jules and I are taking a little mini break over the next few weeks, but never fear. We have a couple of remasters lined up for you, as well as a fun crossover episode that we have with Melissa from Mimosa Sisterhood. We had Melissa on the show in July of last year, where she talked to us all about Mimosa Sisterhood, podcasting, how she got into it, and it was such a fun episode. So when she reached out and asked if I would be a guest on her show, I was like, hell yeah, girl. So I got to hang out with her, and we talked about two badass ladies. So that's the episode that we have for you this week. I will also, in our show notes, link to the episode where Melissa was on the show. Um, So if you want to check that out, you can. I'll also have all of her socials listed out, so that way, if you want to give her a follow, you can. Be sure to check out Mimosa Sisterhood. She's so rad, and it's so much fun hanging out with her. I had such an awesome time. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And in the meantime, if y'all have any artists or creatives that you would love for us to have on the Peony, reach out. Let us know. Feel free to DM us at the Peony Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or you can leave us a voicemail. Our number is 707 702-0401. Also, if you have anything that you'd like to share with us, um, you know, if you're creative and if you're going through anything right now, or if you want to share a fun work story, feel free to give us a call. We love hearing from you guys. So please feel free to reach out. Again, that number is 707-892-0401. And yeah, we hope you guys are having an excellent day and that you really enjoy this episode. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, Lex. Hello, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool to see us on the other side of the mic with you on my show. I know. I'm so excited. I was like, I lost it when... (laughs) You reached out. I was like, oh, yes. So I'm really excited to be here and hanging with you, talking about badass ladies. Hell yeah. yeah. So everybody out there listening, Lex is a co-host on another podcast called The Peony. And I was on that show. Gosh, I don't even know how long ago that was. Uh, I think it was a while ago. I think it was last summer. That's, that Maybe makes sense. Earlier. I don't know. Time is an illusion at this point. Like, it I have really no is. idea, no concept of of anything. Um, but yeah, you were on our show, which uh, The Peony is a podcast that's about having vulnerable conversations with creatives, um, which sounds really, like, emotional and heavy, but it's very off the rails and goofy. My co-host, Julia, and I will often ask people, like, so, like, what made you want to go into a creative field? And also, do you believe in aliens? And, like, if you do, (laughs) how will you be abducted? (laughs) Like, you know, two sides of the same coin, really. Yes, yes. Um, I feel like she asked me some hilarious questions during that episode. And like, (laughs) I can't remember what they are now. (laughs) But I feel like one of them might have been like, who do you want to like be eating brunch with? And yes, it was. I don't remember who I said, but it was probably a great answer. So yeah, fantastic (laughs) conversation. (laughs) So fun. It's so goofy. We had such a good time together. So I'm pumped to be hanging out again well so the coolest part which i think the world should know is like the strange way that i connected with you guys which was through the platform girl boss yeah 
like I've talked about girl boss in the past on different episodes, but I know like people today hate the term girl boss and I totally get it, but we have to give a shout out to what was her name? So Sophia, who's the originator of girl boss? I think so. I know. Yeah. Sophia. I can never say her last name. Amaruso. Sophia Amaruso. She Mm. was the woman that coined the term girl boss but she originally started with nasty girl which was her like Mm -hmm. vintage business that she created by herself at like i don't know 20 years old while getting shit faced and doing drugs in san francisco which was literally (laughs) what i was doing at the same age but instead of launching my own vintage business that led me to become a multimillionaire, i was just hanging out in hippie hill and doing nothing (laughs) so she started nasty gal went on to launch girl boss um, and now has like another business, a brand new business. Um, but Girl Boss right now is like this online digital platform community where people like myself can make an account and you can like network with other women. And I think it's a great resource. Like I think like if anybody out there is looking for something like a networking opportunity, it's so good because they have like job opportunities on there, a podcast section where you can find guests for your show which is how i connected with julia there's just like so much you could be doing there that if you aren't on the platform i highly suggest getting on it because it's just you can meet a lot of people and make a lot of connections and there really isn't anywhere else that you can do that like or get like no one's on facebook like awkwardly dming each other you know it's like a, yeah it's meant to connect so you aren't like the weirdo if you reach out <laughs> to another girl you know yeah it's also nice too because i think like Sure, you can network and meet people on LinkedIn, but I think at least my experience with LinkedIn has been it's either very formal or like, well, it's always very formal, but then sometimes it's very passive aggressive. It's just like a weird, it's a weird vibe Um, versus like girl boss is I I haven't used it, but Julia is like she's great at finding guests. Um, And now I'm like, I need to go sign up after this. Uh, But we've we've found so many guests through Girlboss and are like still very much connected to them, still talk, like have people back on the show, are friends with them. It's it's so dope. It's just really easy to meet like minded people from totally from our experience. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. Everybody out there. it's really cool. And I, again, I should probably do an episode on Sophia because she is Ooh. an icon. <laughs> <laughs> do it. Well, yay. We're here. Yeah. We're talking about women in history. This is going to be our, uh, we're celebrating Black history today on the mm-hmm. show. And we both have two awesome women from different time periods. So excited to see how those stories intersect. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they will. But um, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Moscow Mule. I love a good Moscow Mule. It's it's my go-to. That and really any vodka-based drink. I'm like vodka tonic, Moscow yep. Mule. Yep, 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 yep. Keep what it coming. Of, what kind of vodka are you drinking? It's called Ghost Coast, um, which I had never heard of. But a friend of mine uh, went to Savannah, Georgia for work and was like, can I bring any anybody anything back? And I made a joke. I was like, yeah, bring me some ghosts. Like, I would love to be haunted. That would be great. And uh, so he responded. He was like, so um, 
all of the ghosts of the coast wanted to come back with me as like a hint. Yeah. And I was like, oh, ha ha ha. Great. Like, that'll be fun. And then last night uh, when we were hanging out for a game night, he gave me the gift and it was a bottle of Ghost Coast vodka. And I think it's distilled in Savannah, Georgia. It's very nice. So I'm having a good time. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. And like, I also have been to Savannah once and I freaking loved it. I've never been. I want to go so well, badly. Well, it was scorching hot, which was the worst mm. thing ever. And it was October, which is like, why is it? Why am I like Ugh. burning in hell in October? <laughs> like, this is not good. And it wasn't like hot, like we're in LA and the sun's beaming down. It's like sticky and sweaty and like wet. Yeah. The humidity. I don't know <laughs> how y'all do it. Like if you live in Florida or what I'm also in LA. So anytime it's like humidity, 70%. I'm like, no, I'm no, going to die. And then there are people who like, ugh. I, there was one time I was in Florida and it was like 95 degrees, 100% humidity. And I was like, I can't do this. No. Like I could never. So yeah. East Coasters are made of stronger stuff. Uh-huh. I, I, I can't. Nope. It's one of the reasons why I know I could never live in the South at all. But it was so beautiful. And they have all those like, I think they're like weeping willow trees or I don't know if they are, but like those trees with the hanging moss. Yeah. They're so beautiful. So it's just so gorgeous. It's like so much Mm -hmm. history there. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of bad history, but like also just like (laughs) you can feel it in your soul when you're walking around because you just know that like you're in a really like lots of shit's happened here and you can just like feel it through your veins Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like very powerful yeah yeah that's how i felt the first time i went to london i felt like i could feel the history like Uh coming up and trying to grab me it was cool and also very spooky yes spooky. the east coast very much has that east coast and the south has has that feeling where you're just like oh (laughs) i'm in danger okay yeah (laughs) i mean just the spanish moss in general there's it's eerie it's spooky it's beautiful but it's like haunted (laughs) like you know like you're kind of like there are spirits in these like trees yeah yeah there's just (laughs) ghosts in this moss Oh, my God. Well, hell yeah. I'm so stoked on this vodka. Mm-hmm. Oh, Purin went out to the ghosts today. Yeah. <laughs> Having a spirit for the spirits. Oh, love it. <laughs> what are love you drinking? <laughs> I am drinking something way less cool. I am so last minute on it. I like ran to CVS earlier and was like, oh, my God, I have no alcohol in the house. What's going on? And I got a <laughs> bottle of wine and I always try to like pair my alcohol with my lady. And so I'm like trying mm-hmm. to like make a connection here and nothing's clicking. So I'm like, well, that's out of the picture. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll I, find something along the way. Yeah. I don't know. If th- I don't know if this is this is really the wine for my woman tonight, but it caught my eye because it's called Mind and Body. And I was Ooh. like cracking up because I'm like. Yeah, I mean, wine really helps my mind. Like, if I'm having Mm -hmm. a bad day or I'm stressed, like, I am absolutely pouring a glass of wine and hitting the bathtub and, like, all my sorrows have gone away. So, like, that makes sense. And then I'm like, what about the body? Like, isn't alcohol bad for you? And then I looked in closer and it says premium low-calorie wine. And I'm like, oh, okay, so I can get drunk guilt-free. I see. (laughs) And at first I was like, that's lame. And then I was like, I'm going to try it because I don't think I've ever had a low calorie wine before. It looks like a yogi, like 
curated this. Like it, it literally does. looks like this would be like the Instagram photo of like somebody's <laughs> yoga company, you know? It looks like you went to Santa Monica and just like peeled off like a, a welcome sign. Yes. One of those like we serve bone broth and kale and yes. that's it. Yes. Slapped like, it on a bottle. I should be covering like Gwyneth Paltrow tonight oh my with God. this <laughs> bottle of wine. You know what I mean? <laughs> All it needs is a vaginal crystal to go alongside of it. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So I was like, all right, well, we're doing it. Um, And, like, my first sip was, like, I made, like, a face. I almost wish I got it on, like, so that you could see it. It's, like, a little sour. Okay. But then I kept drinking it, and I'm like, oh, this is actually really good. And I can tell that there is, like, low sugar or, like, no Uh sugar. Because I, I've drinking half the bottle and I'm not buzzed. So I'm oh, like, I'm like, well, either it's coming like within seconds, like yep. I'm about to be fucked. Or I think this is almost what everybody wants where they can drink a whole bottle of wine and not be hungover because yeah. there's no sugar. What's the so, alcohol volume on it? Let's see. 8.5. Okay. So that's not nothing. That's like a, a good beer. All right. Yeah, it's like a hop, like a brewery beer, not like yeah, a Coors yeah. Light, but like maybe a good p- pilsner. Yeah, I know a lot of road. people like if it's a red wine, we'll feel it a lot more than if it's a white, and because that's a white wine, right? Yes. This yeah. Is, oh yeah, it's a Pinot Grigio. Yeah, because I, I know even like I love red wine, but sometimes if it's a little too full bodied or too many tannins or whatever, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know these words. I just repeat them back Me like too. a parrot. Me too. <laughs> But sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm having a nice time. Okay. But I know red wine will, like, give people headaches more, so. I mean, I'm usually pretty good in general, but I'm interested. Like, I'm interested. I'll, like, report back tomorrow and be like, I feel like shit or, like, I actually feel (laughs) great and I'm going to buy a case, you know? Like, I'll let you know. But, yeah, this is some low-calorie mind-body wine. I mean, if it is what it says it is, then I'll support it because... If it helps my mind and body, I'm all in. Why not? (laughs) All right. Well. Become one. Cheers. 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 Tonight. Cheers to drinks. Cheers to our women. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Well, we decided earlier that I'm going to go first because Mm -hmm. I, my woman uh, came first in life. So it'd be kind of cool to watch that like progression of women's stories or at least their experience as black women living in the world. I was going to say America, but then I was like, I don't know if your woman's American. So She is American. Okay. All right. So uh, I'm going to cover a lady from old Hollywood era. And I had actually never heard of her before. So she is brand new to me. And um, I will just preface by saying, like, when I, like, read a brief description of her story, I was like, oh, this is so great. Like, yes, she's going to be perfect. I love this. So good. So empowering. And like then when I got, like, deeper into her story, I was like, oh, my God, this is so fucking tragic. Oh, boy. Yeah. It, it, gets, it gets tragic. And it's sad. And that sucks. But... Uh, she still is an absolute icon, and the fact that I don't know who she is is concerning. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to just tell her story. And if you've never heard of her, well, here's Dorothy Dandridge. 
Okay. So I have heard of her. This is not who I thought you were covering, though. But Did you think I was covering Billie Holiday? I initially thought that. I thought you were going to cover, and I realized, I was like, maybe she's already covered her. Eartha Kitt is who I no. thought you were going to cover. No. I was either going to cover, I was first going to cover Billie Holiday, and then I was like, I'm going to cover Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah, yeah. Billie's story is... Um, okay, I'm excited. I'm so excited to learn about Dorothy because I've I've heard her name, but I don't know if I've I don't know if I'm familiar with her work or not. So I'm mm-hmm. really excited to learn about her. Yeah, she uh, and like like I'm saying, and you'll hear more later in her story. But I mean, she was right alongside so many other old Hollywood actresses that we hear and know about all the time today. Mm-hmm. So I was like really surprised that I'd never seen this name before. But I guess also not that surprised because that's just the reality of the world that we live in. Yeah. So to summarize her story briefly, she was an old Hollywood actress. She was also a singer, but she's credited and famous for being the very first African-American person to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. She was the first. It never happened before. So. She became the first of the first and um, allowed kind of this like pathway for other people to kind of follow in her footsteps. So to tell you a little bit about her story, uh, she was born on November 9th, 1922 in Cleveland, Ohio. Her mother was Ruby Dandridge, who was an actress, and her father was Cyril Dandridge. He was a Baptist minister, and her parents had a lot of problems in their relationship to the point that Ruby's mom actually ended up leaving the dad like during pregnancy so by the time Dorothy was born like she never knew her dad at all and I think part of the reason why Ruby left Cyril was because she had a lover on the side oh and not just any lover a female lover oh yeah (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Her lover's name was Geneva Williams, and this woman was a real bitch. I know that's harsh, but she was literally like an evil stepmother. Oh, no. She was not a good woman. Ugh. Uh, Yeah. And so just, you know, yeah, uh, already off to a rough start. So at a very early age, Ruby's mom pushed her two daughters, Dorothy and Vivian. So there was a Dorothy had a sister named Vivian. She kind of like pushed them straight into show business and had them performing together as sisters in a song and dance group that they called the Wonder Children. So she literally had them like in show business really young. (laughs) Like they were like the original child stars, probably like along with like Shirley Temple, like that age. And their act, the Wonder Children, was managed by none other than Ruby's lover, Geneva, who I already told you was a real bitch. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's reported that she had a really bad temper and she used to like very like cruelly discipline the children. So the two sisters toured the South together for five years. And they performed in black churches primarily was like where they were performing and they rarely attended school because they were in a 
dance and singing group together as young children performing for five years. And at the same time, their mom, Ruby, was also still acting and performing home in Cleveland, which means Geneva must have been taking the girls all around the South doing this like song and dance gig Mm -hmm. and like also being their like pretend mom slash band manager slash evil stepmom. So not really what you'd imagine for like a young child's growth and development. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. Um, And then the Great Depression hit. And so work ended, gigs ended, performing ended, and Mm -hmm. their like little band thing they had going on was like over. Like there was, they weren't getting hired to do shows anymore or like getting invited to do things because it was literally the Great Depression. So uh, their mom, Ruby, moved the whole family. I don't know if the evil stepmom came. I like actually never heard about her again after this. So who knows what happened to her, but they all moved to Hollywood, California around the 1930s, and their mother found steady work in radio, and mm. she also got a couple of smaller acting gigs, primarily only playing the roles of domestic servants, because that was all that was available to black yeah. actresses during the time. But I guess the good thing about this move and the fact that it was the Great Depression was that Dorothy started going to school because she Yay. wasn't working Uh as a child. Yeah. Um, and so she attended McKinley Junior High School, which I don't know myself, but I am imagining is somewhere in Hollywood. And so in 1934, the Wonder Children, which was the name of her and her sister's little group, uh, they renamed themselves to the Dandridge Sisters. And then they added on a third, which was a girl named Etta Jones, who was one of their like dance schoolmates. And the three of them went around and performed together. And, uh, Dorothy was 12 years old at this time. So still very young. Yeah. And the group was a hit. They landed gigs at all kinds of famous places. They performed at the Cotton Club in Harlem. They performed with like top acts that were, you know, booming at the time. And as an African-American singer in the 30s, she obviously was confronted with segregation and racism very Mm -hmm. early on in her life and within the entertainment industry. So even though she was allowed on stage and in some venues, she wasn't allowed to eat at the venue restaurants or allowed to use certain facilities within the venue. I imagine like probably the bathroom or whatever other facilities they had because of her skin color. So very strange to be like, invited to be a performer but be like you can't go here or there though (laughs) yeah that happened a lot to uh sister rosetta uh tharp she's uh uh listeners google godmother of rock and roll you will get her but covered her with uh uh, dolly parton a long time ago but yeah an iconic i think i don't remember what we called it but i'll tag it in the episode notes you guys should listen to it she's she was just so badass, but that happened a lot. I think she also performed at the Cotton Club as well in Harlem. And same thing, like you're allowed to be on stage, but that's it. That's all you get. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Really fucked up. So uh, 
As a teenager, uh, she started landing small roles in a number of different films. So her first on-screen performance was in a small comedy short called Our Gang. And then she got a part within the Dandridge sisters. Like as a group, they appeared in the big broadcast of 1936 with Bill Bojangles Robinson. Mm -hmm. And then they did A Day at the Races with the Marx Brothers. And then they did It Can't Last Forever with the Jackson Brothers. So they were in entertainment. Like they were doing well. Yeah. For being like in high school also. Like they were in a good spot. And like although these appearances were pretty minor, it did start to gain Dorothy recognition throughout like the nightclub performance scene, which is so ironic because she was like 14 or something in the nightclub performance scene. So her first credited role was in 1940 and it was a film called Four Shall Die. And in this film, she was cast as a murderer. (gasps) Like it was a horror film and she was a murderer and it did very, very little for her career. Because at this time, which I'd like kind of already mentioned earlier, black actresses were basically only cast in roles of like the maid or Mm -hmm. men were cast as like the butler. That was like all that they were getting. And she basically refused to accept a role that was like stereotypical in that way. So in order for her to get a like non-racially stereotypical role, she had to like take these like shitty side jobs and like be the murderer (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah so she kind of got into film doing bad roles for like movies that no one watched or ever heard of and it didn't really bring her the admiration or respect because no one was watching them and yeah it it wasn't good Mm. but aside from her film appearances during this time she got into Something I'd never heard of before until reading this. She was uh, appearing in like what they called soundies. Mm-hmm. And it, from my understanding, it's like short film clips that were displayed on a jukebox. Have you heard of these? You I know think- these? Oh, I was like, yeah, it's called talkies. And I was like, no, 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 soundies. I actually don't know if I've heard this. I've seen... And I don't know if this is the same thing, but like I've seen it's like it looks like a jukebox and then you select the film that you want to watch and you like crank it. That's what it was. But OK, but I've seen it not with sound. I've seen it just as like a. it's almost like a flip book. I think um, that's what it was. I mean, what I read okay. just said jukebox. So I'm thinking like a music jukebox and like what there's like a video in there. I don't understand. But then <laughs> I Googled it because I was like, I want to know what this is. And I found a bunch of YouTube videos of the film and yeah yeah, it seems like it's more along the lines of what you described i think so if you're ever at disneyland um if you go into on main street there's oh i think it says it's an arcade but it's like the candy shop there's the like palm reader that you can stick a dollar in and it'll give you there's that but Mm -hmm. on the sides there are these they they I'm thinking that this is what it is. It's like those big yes. jukebox and you I crank it. I know what it. you're talking about. Yep. And you can watch. I think they're all Charlie Chaplin like shorts. Yes. Oh, um, my God. So I feel like it's probably like that. It maybe. is like that. Okay. Because oh, this dope. whole time okay. I like couldn't visualize it in my yep. head. But now I know exactly what you're talking about because I've looked at those <laughs> at Disneyland. <laughs> ah, there we That's go. That's it. Yeah. But I, I guess maybe you select the one you want to watch instead. Or maybe it's just one. No, yeah, there was, she did tons of them and you can literally watch them on YouTube right now. They're all on the internet. And so basically like 
these films showed her talent as a singer because she sang in them as a dancer she was dancing in them and as an actor because sometimes she'd play like different roles in like Mm -hmm. her singing and whatever she was doing but to describe these videos because I was like I need to see what this is they were short black and white films and they from the ones that I watched I didn't watch every one of them I just kind of browsed through quickly but Mm -hmm. it reminded me of like a scene from a wild wild west bar where (laughs) it like featured a man like jamming out on the piano and then she was like standing in front of him like singing and dancing and then like around her are like flappers and like bar people and they're like sitting on each other's laps and like cozying up it like reminded me of scene of west what is that westworld have you ever seen that show i haven't seen westworld okay it was Uh, like that (laughs) do you remember hit clips from like our yes, middle school years. Okay. <laughs> this is giving me like hit clips vibes, but for like yes, <laughs> 30s yes, and 40s. Yes. 100%. Like you get a snippet of the thing. Yes. And that's all you get. Literally a snippet. <laughs> so like, a, like a tiny little drive or something. I can't believe we thought those were the future. Like <laughs> embarrassing. So that's going to be like on eBay right now as like a vintage item. Oh, Lord. Whew. So later in the 1940s, while she was doing a gig at the Cotton Club, she met a handsome dancer and entertainer. He was a tap dancer, I believe. And his Mm -hmm. name was Harold Nicholas. And they hit it off immediately and basically like went straight to the wedding ceremony and were like married within days, I think. Like maybe not like days, but like it was instantaneous okay it was like a disney situation like we've known each other three days yes a done deal rom-com style (laughs) yeah and it was a horrible idea uh oh no newsflash bad idea (laughs) those things usually never really pan out by the way um (laughs) so yeah he was a nightmare and basically Word on the street was that he liked to chase around other women. Mm. So untrustworthy, a slime ball, a cheater, all of the, all of the things. Our favorite um, adverbs. Yes, and she got pregnant and um, gave birth to her only child that she ever ended up having, and her child's name was Harolyn Suzanne Nicholas. Mm. And uh, her child was born on September second, nineteen forty three. This is where things get not good. Uh-oh. So while she was in labor, Harold took off to go golf and basically, like, left her stranded at the home without a car. I mean, I don't think she was like, I'm in labor. And he was like, sick, I'm going to go golf right now. I think it was like <laughs> she was, you know, probably, like, nine months pregnant, yeah. exploding at the seams, and he was just, like, out living his best life. Like, his wife wasn't about to be in labor any second, any day. Mm-hmm. So while he was out doing his thing, she went into labor and had no way to, like, get to the hospital. And eventually she did make it to the hospital, but the delay of getting there delayed the birth, and they ended up having to use, which I don't know what this is, forceps yep i don't know what that is they are um so forceps are like they're like these big clamps they i'm trying to um if you've ever had an iud inserted or Mm -hmm. removed the tool that they'll usually use to like put that in or remove the iud is what a forcep is i'm trying to think of think of it like 
tongs, like if uh-huh. tongs and scissors had a baby. Oh, God. Um, but so what it'll do is like yeah, reach into the vaginal canal and help pull Ugh. the baby out. But a lot of times they would do it around the skull and it can, I'm assuming this is probably what likely happened, but a lot of times babies who were born with that may be hard of hearing or may have damage to their hearing or their eyesight or something because it's... It's not good. It's a. It's not a good way to deliver babies. So why wouldn't they just do a C-section? Was that not a thing? It may not have been, or it may have been like, it could have been. I don't know because I think because I I've had family members and I know a few friends who were delivered using forceps. Um, really? I don't know if it's like if the baby a, a situation like the baby needs to come out now because the oxygen deprivation or if the umbilical cords around the neck maybe they're like we just got to get the baby out as fast as we can Mm -hmm. and we don't have time to like yeah do all that do a c-section yeah yes i quickly looked it up um c-sections have been a thing since 1610 which is very concerning (laughs) well um but the modern c-section emerged around the 1940s which was still before this time period um so yeah they probably just didn't have enough time to do that so uh, this procedure that they did uh left their child with brain damage and it was a lifelong situation uh it that required 24 7 care And Dorothy blamed herself for this. Yeah. Like, she was mortified that this happened, and she thought it was her fault because she couldn't get to the hospital in time to have, like, a regular birth. Mm-hmm. So she kind of, like, carried that the weight of that for her entire life. Yeah. And her child was so horribly brain damaged that she was unable to speak and had no recollection of Dorothy even being her mom. Oh. God. Really horrible. Absolutely horrible. So uh, during this time, Dorothy like gave up performing. Yeah. Totally understand. Uh, And she just was like trying to get her life together and figure out her shitty husband and take care of her daughter and just like probably dealing with a lot of grief and like trauma from the entire incident. And so she ends up divorcing that piece of shit husband in 1951 and then got back Mm -hmm. to work. And her first role was playing... um, I'm going to butcher this, Momendi, Queen of the Ashuba in a Tarzan film, where she received a ton of attention for wearing what was considered provocative clothing. Mm -hmm. It's probably like a swimsuit or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, They were very alarmed by her provocative outfit. Oh, my God. She has legs. Right? But the publicity around her outfit ended up getting her kind of like the good visibility that she needed for her career. And then she also returned back to the nightclub scene. But this time she was uh, performing as like a solo singer and she was a huge hit. In fact, super funny. She ended up getting a one week gig at the Macombo Club in Hollywood, which was basically operated by Desi Arnaz, which was Lucille Ball's husband. What? Yeah. I just talked about him in my last episode. Lots of thoughts on Desi Arnaz. If you're interested in hearing them, listen to the last episode. But yeah, he 
he was a musician and he was mm-hmm. at this club and you know was the big thing and she basically had like a one week she was like opening for him i think for a week so that got wow. her a lot of recognition and then she ended up selling out a 14 week gig at a club called la vie and rose so mm-hmm. things were just like really starting to boom for her and then after all of this she basically was like on her way to becoming an international star and she started performing at venues all over the world london rio de janeiro san francisco new york and was just like getting out there so she's like the career is moving things are happening for her mm-hmm. and then she lands her very first like starring film role it's 1953 she's got her first big acting gig And she's in a film called Bright Road, where she plays this, like, earnest young school teacher. And she's, like, acting alongside Harry Belafonte. And it was, like, a big hit. Like, it wasn't, like, booming, but it was really good for her and her career. And it's really what led to her landing her next gig, which, like, changed her life. So her next role was... She basically landed the leading role in an all-black musical film adaptation of Oscar Hammerstein II's 1943 Broadway musical Carmen Jones. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is why I know this name. (laughs) So I was like reading more about this and I'm like, what opera is this? And I do a quick Google search and I'm like, oh, that one. And mm-hmm. I, like, kept it up so I could, like, remember the jingle. Oh. You know, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to get, like, killed for having this on the internet. Uh, Spotify or somebody's going to come and, like, strip it from the internet. But, like, yeah. that opera, like, I've never seen this in my life, but, like, I know that sound. Yeah, yes. <laughs> That's one of those, like, pop cultural references yes. that just... You're born and it's just there in your brain somewhere. Right? I'm like, oh, I know that. How funny. (laughs) They did an all-black version of it. Like, okay, cool. So they did. And she had the leading role in the act. And the adaptation took place in a World War II era within an African-American setting. She was, even though during this time she was a singer herself, like she had just Mm -hmm. been doing solo gigs and stuff, she didn't really have like an opera voice. So they kind of had to like bring in somebody else named Marilyn uh, Horn who ended up doing the vocals. And so they just like dubbed it over. Mm-hmm. Carmen Jones opened like strong at the box office on October 28th, 1954, earning $70,000 during its first week, 50000 during its second. And wow. it was just like the talk of the town and she was the leading woman in the role doing the opera song that I just butchered and said um and I you can also watch it on YouTube which is really cool uh so her performance as this like seductive leading actress woman made Mm -hmm. her one of Hollywood's first African-American sex symbols and it the reviews of her in that film were just all 100% positive like Everybody was stoked off of her. And so following this fame, she became the first black woman to ever be featured on the cover of Life and that like Life magazine. And that took place November 1st, 1954. And at the end of all of this, Carmen Jones became the opera that she was in, became a worldwide success. And it eventually earned over $10 million at the box office, becoming one of the year's highest earning films 
at that time. And, and that's is, like 1954 money, right? Yes. Damn. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> yes. And it ended up, I mean, it's what basically helped her get nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress, which led to her becoming the first black person to be nominated for a leading role. So groundbreaking. So many ground. I mean, the fact that this like all black cast had that huge of success in general is so cool. $10 million, 70,000 in the first week. Like that's just unbelievable. And I think that like her in that role is kind of like what made it so successful because people Mm -hmm. were already just like really starting to like her and she was like known around the world internationally as this like up and coming icon and that role just sealed the deal. So on the 27th Academy Awards held on March 30th, 1955, Dorothy shared her Oscar nomination with Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, Judy Garland, and Jane Wyman. That's who she was up against. Wow, 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 wow. That's who she was up against. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Right? So that's what I'm saying. How have I never heard of her? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So she didn't win, of course. But uh, Grace Kelly ended up winning uh, for her performance in The Country Girl, but Regardless, Dorothy became an overnight sensation for the fact that she was even nominated and stood alongside those famous white female actresses. So massive. Now, on another Carmen Jones note, one less exciting and less fantastic, while she was filming for this role, she began an affair with the director, who was Otto Preminger, and it lasted oh, four no. years. Oh, wow. Um, this guy was also a real dick. And no, <laughs> Dorothy, no. Girl, run. Yeah. And um, while they were dating and because he was this, like, producer or whatever he was, he was, like, giving her career advice because, of course, duh, why mansplain. I know everything <sighs> in the industry. You're just this, like, actress. That, like, you're so lucky you're famous, you know? I and made so, you. Blah, exactly. Blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so he basically told her, like, just like what you said, I've made you this international star. Mm-hmm. You are blah, blah, blah. You're amazing. Da, da, da. You, at this point moving forward, you should never accept any role that isn't the leading star role. Like, you, no. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you hit the top. You will only take those offers and nothing, nothing below ever for the rest uh, of your life. No. And um, she took his advice and it ended up being like the biggest regret of her career and yeah. of her life because it really backfired down the line. Yeah. Um, worse, in 1955, she became pregnant with Otto uh, oh, no. and was forced to have an abortion by the studio. Oh, no. Yeah. Studios back in those days like owned you like everything about you. It's awful. He was also white. Mm. Mm. Uh, which I don't think helps. And nope. um, like overall, their their interracial romance, as well as like all the other relationships she'd had with other white lovers, was frowned upon by the studio, by her fellow actors and actresses, but particularly by the African-American members of the Hollywood filmmaking community. 
So she had a lot of backlash coming at her for her entire romantic relationship endeavors. So she had her abortion and then she ended up uh, ending her affair when she realized that Otto had no plans to leave his wife because, of course, he had a wife. Yeah. Why would he? Why would he? Exactly. So that ended. Um, and then after that, she ended up signing a three movie deal with 20th Century Fox, starting in a $75,000 film. So that's mm. a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, yeah. $75,000 a film is what she'd be making in 1955. That is that's so that's much money. money. Yeah, especially then. Yeah. Even now, sometimes I'm like, that's a lot. That's. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so uh, Daryl Zanuck, who is, I might be saying that wrong. He was the studio head at the time. He had like personally suggested that the studio sign Dorothy to a contract because he had like big plans for her. He was super excited about her evolving into like Hollywood as this like black iconic woman on like the big screen and like he just saw this vision for her and so he ended up like purchasing the film rights to a movie called the blue angel with like every intention to cast her as a saloon singer named lola lola and again it was going to be an all black like remake of the original which was like a 1930s film Mm -hmm. and he was also planning to star her as um or he was had another plan for her as a cigarette girl or something like that in a different show. Mm-hmm. But at this time, she was, like, still seeing Otto, who was like, oh, no, you won't take roles like that because you're just the leading lady. No. And you will not <laughs> be – you won't be the saloon singer or the cigarette girl. So she turned them down. No. no. She turned them down, and the uh. roles were eventually given to Rita Moreno – a Puerto Rican <gasps> actress. Yeah. Oh, my God. Who's and also incredibly famous yep. and an icon in Hollywood. Yep. West Side Story. But just crazy how she turned these down and they went to... Re- it's just, yep. like, Man. wild. So, yeah. Uh, bad advice taken there. Mm-hmm. Um, not good. And so after her success with Carmen Jones and the fact that she was turning down all these other roles that were being offered, she wasn't getting jobs. And... Uh, there was also like limited opportunities because of her race. So it sucks because Otto gave her horrible advice and she Mm -hmm. trusted him and listened to it and it fucked her up in her career. So thanks, Otto. Then this stupid thing happened in 1957 where she got like mixed up in uh, like a trial over libel. So Mm -hmm. there was some like tabloids have were a thing. Apparently, mm-hmm. in the yep. 1950s, they, I, who knows when they started? I can't even believe they've been around that long. <laughs> Forever, Ta- tabloids came around <laughs> and they were invented and started writing like stupid shit about Hollywood actresses. And they wrote something about her. And so she sued this tabloid magazine over a article that they wrote that was ridiculous and out of control and 100 percent fake, where she apparently was fornicating with a white band leader in the woods of Lake Tahoe. Okay. What? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, I hate tabloids so much. Just spin a wheel, pick a few things, slap a celebrity's name on it. Like, that is the MO. Yeah. 
So she was like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Like, I will not stand for this. So she testified in like court because they had been writing shit about a lot of women, all sexually related stories, of course. Um, And a bunch of them were like, fuck this. We need to like all go and like challenge this because it's not cool. So yeah, she testified. The reasoning behind her test, like test, like what she had said is just even more atrocious and true is that. There's no way this could have possibly happened because racial segregation at the time had forced her to be locked up in her hotel room and that if she wasn't performing or like on stage, she wasn't allowed to be like mingling around. Yeah. And so she would she was required per segregation laws to be alone in her room at all times. If she wasn't on the stage performing and legally it was like mandated. So she'd be like escorted back to her room to be like not seen again until like the next performance. So she's like, there's no way in hell I could have been out in the woods having a jolly jolly time with a white band leader. Like y'all literally would let me. (laughs) (laughs) May have wanted to. (laughs) Right. I, it's bad. It's bad either way you slice it. Yeah. Like, it doesn't, there's no good side no. of any of it. Like, <sighs> haha, yeah. now we've exposed your racism right? even more than the tablet. Like, what? It, it's a mess. It's a it, mess. It's a lose lose. Oh my God. Yeah. So, it, her claims and all these other women's claims were able to like prove that the tabloid, it was called the Hollywood Research, I think it was called, or maybe it was called the Confidential. I don't remember. But, they had committed libel and so she ended up settling for like 10,000. So that whole stupid scandal was done and over with and then later that same year so she actually had like a 3 year absence from acting during this time cuz like she wasn't getting roles, the trial was happening just like a lot of things. And so right after that, she accepted another role to star in the production of Porgy and Bess, which would hmm. become her first major Hollywood film in 5 years. So wow. 5 years struggling in the industry and then like landed this but her acceptance of the role angered the black community who felt that the story's negative stereotyping of black people was degrading so it's just like again it's like like she's trying to have like a career and she's trying to do what she loves and she just like it's just not working out yeah it's there's no there's no winning with it. And then it's also like, what part of your identity are you having to give up in order to do that thing? And like, it, yeah. Oh, my, oh, my God. So around the same time, she marries her second husband. His name's Jack Dennison. This is 1959 now. And once again, he was a raging piece of shit. Raging piece of shit. No, stop dating. Just I know. Bleh. Just cancel no. men altogether. For real. And he was abusive, and he also mishandled her money, which led to Dorothy losing a ton, uh, a ton of her savings that went towards Jack's failed restaurant business. I, what a fucking loser. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. So they divorced in 1962 amid financial setbacks and allegations of domestic violence. And through all of this, throughout the divorce, Dorothy also discovers that the people who were handling her finances had been swindling her out of $150,000. And she also owed like $139,000 in like taxes or something. So she was like broke. 
Like she was broke. No. And she was forced to sell her Hollywood home and move into like some shitty ass apartment in West Hollywood. And this is the worst part. She was forced to put her daughter in a state mental institution because she couldn't afford to pay for her daughter's 24-hour medical care. No. Oh, no. What the fuck? Like, I can't even... that's not going to go well, I'm sure. Think of anything worse a mother would ever have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Where you don't get to really have a decision in how your child is taken care of. I can't imagine. So uh, nothing's going well. The career is failing. She has no money. Her marriage is once again in the shitter and she's like lost her daughter in a capacity. So she begins drinking heavily and taking antidepressants and not doing well. Um, The threat of bankruptcy and like nagging problems with the IRS was just like looming over her at all times. But it also forced her to get back into like a nightclub career because she had to make money somehow. But once she like got back into the nightclub scene, she just like didn't have the success that she used to have. So it wasn't booming like it had been back in the day. So she like still wasn't really making enough money to like pick her life back up. And then she soon suffered a nervous breakdown. Oh, Um, no, no, no. Yes. And then on September 8th, 1969, she called her friend who was like a who was actually her former sister-in-law from her first husband. I guess they remained friends, Geraldine. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had some long conversation like that was depressing and like not good. And she was just like talking a lot about like how stressed she was over her career. And there was this like Barbara Streisand role she really wanted to get. And she wasn't like sure about it. And then she like ended the conversation saying like this really cryptic message, quote, whatever happens, I know you will understand to her friend. No. Yes. And then several hours later, Dorothy was found unresponsive in her apartment by her manager, Earl Mills. And it was determined that the cause of death was an accidental overdose of antidepressants. Oh, no. And she was 42 years old and she only had a little bit more than $2 in her bank account at the time of her death. Good God. Horrible, right? That's awful. That's what I'm saying. Once I got to this part of the research, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? It started off so strong. Yeah. Like, ugh. I mean, it's one of those things, like, unfortunately, uh, just the way that black women are treated and historically have been treated in this country and in these societies and in the systems, especially like I think the entertainment industry, like being a part of it, it's it's sort of always like promotes itself as very inclusive and welcoming and liberal and to some extent, I guess, but then you hear about the treatment of artists, especially um, black women and it just is absolutely heartbreaking it, yeah it oh my god yeah and like you know I always like try to end on quotes since I was like looking up quotes about that had she had said like famous quotes that are like you know written down in history of things she said and they were all sad like I couldn't find one oh, no. uplifting quote 
because like everything that like her perspective and like her experience and what she understood about herself and her job was so Mm -hmm. heavily tied into her race and the way that the world perceived her and that she was always going to be held back and not enough because of that and I think it I mean that alone in addition to like the horrible men that were abusive towards her her you know terrible tragedy with her daughter like all these other traumas she went through like yeah. I mean how much can a person go through like yeah there's only so much emotionally that you can handle and outside of just the traumas she was dealing with she also was just trying to navigate a career with like so much against her and all of it out of her control yeah so that is her life and like I said it went really tragic and that just like breaks my fucking heart and there were so many quotes and like I didn't want to tell them because they're just like it's just like putting salt in a wound but I tried to find three that were I thought good and should be expressed so the first one was quote avoid popularity it has many snares and no real benefit which I feel like I have to agree with I mean Mm -hmm. I feel like it's kind of like hinting at fame like it's not as good as you think it's gonna be because it has so many like dark sides to it right you put it up on a pedestal but it's not really you lose a lot with it too yep and her next quote is i was too light to satisfy negroes not light enough to secure the screen work the roles or the marriage status available to white women which is just fucking horrible. Yeah. Feeling like you don't fit in either place. Either side. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, which also just kills me, she said, if I were white, I could capture the world. Oh. So, yeah, she obviously just was very aware of, like I said, just the one thing that, like, held her back in her career was the one thing she could never change. And having to, like, figure out how to, like, accept that and move past it, hard, like, impossible. Like, I don't know that you can. Yeah, yeah it's that thing, like, of, you know, it, it's something that's so far out of your control and it's not even – there's nothing you can do to change it. It's not the thing that is holding you back. It's the thing that people are deciding to use against you. Like they're weaponizing it against you to force you to stay in your place, quote unquote. Like it's, I hope it's getting better. Um, it seems to be getting better. And there also, there's still a lot of conversations and a lot of things that need to change in Hollywood. But it, yeah, when you just feel like there's nothing you can do to to move forward oof i know painful super painful but like you know dorothy really did pave a way for a lot of people that have come after her in like so many different realms like singing acting hollywood Mm, like she she really was kind of like the start of even the people that came after her believing it was possible yeah and when you have the only people who are trying to help you or guide you are people who don't have your best interest at heart like Otto and a lot of the men in her life you know who do you turn to and well I mean even her mom the fact that her mom passed her off to this evil bitch who just took her on tour at like five years old yeah like that was not good when nobody is looking out for you like it's 
And when you're so used to not having somebody care for you, I think you are willing to, you don't know what care looks like. So you wind up in these situations where it's like, like with Otto or with her first husband, you know, it's, it's, there's a whole, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, But that is Dorothy Dandridge. She was an iconic Hollywood actress, paved the way for so many other black singers and actresses. And um, she was standing alongside some of the greatest, most famous Hollywood actresses that we know and hear about every day. And I think it's insane if other people out there have never heard of her. So I hope at least introducing her today and telling her story is a good thing. Yes, <laughs> thing yes, for the world. It is, and it's needed. Like, <laughs> it's um. Thank you for for sharing her. Like, I've heard again. I've heard her name. I've heard yeah. about the Dandridge sisters. Like, but to hear more of her story and to understand the impact, I think is really really important. Because there's a lot of. I think there are a lot of figures that you know of like off the cuff. Yeah. But then you dig a little bit deeper and you're like, oh, wait, hold on. Okay. I had no idea. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, pour one out for your girl, Dorothy. Oh, I will. (laughs) I've been sipping my drink this entire time, so I'm feeling good. Good. (laughs) Well, you are up to the plate. I am. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited and also... uh, (laughs) So we do have some things in common with ours. Um, Unfortunately, the things that we have in common is that both of our ladies have a sad, um, kind of sad ending. Um, Actually, very sad ending. Uh, But again, I think it's important to talk about just the influence that these women have. And so I'm going to do my best to give you as full of a picture as I can. But um, yeah, so... The lady that I'm talking about, well, first of all, okay, I have a question for you. Yes. When you think about grunge, the music scene, Mm -hmm. what do you think of? What comes to mind when you hear grunge music? I probably am not a good person to answer this (laughs) because my favorite band is the Grateful Dead. Um, (laughs) Grunge, I would say, like, I guess I would think of, like... A form of punk rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of like tight pants, like <laughs> men with makeup and like wild hair. I, I yeah. don't know that I know that much about grunge. Okay. Oh no. Well, I'm going to uh, to to dive in a little bit. So a lot of times, like grunge, I think people are always like Nirvana, like mm-hmm. you know Pearl Jam, like bands led by white men mm-hmm. from Seattle. Oh, well, well, well. Um, <laughs> the lady that I'm covering today is considered the queen of grunge town, the godmother of grunge, Tina Bell. Oh, cool. And I've never heard of her. Yeah. So I hadn't either until kind of recently. Um, and there is a reason for it. And I'll get into it a little bit. Actually, a lot of people, including musical historians, hadn't heard of Tina. And it's so upsetting um but but, but we'll get into it yes Um, so tina maria bell was born in seattle washington on february 5th 1957 and she was the eldest of 10 siblings holy smokes i know uh and there's not a whole i will say like let me preface this there's not a whole lot about her i think within the next probably even six months to a year 
so much more is going to be or is going to come out about here and I'll get into the why behind that um but it's it's really cool to see her her story coming to light so I'll but I'll get into more of the why's um so Tina started her singing career um, at Mount Zion Baptist Church in Seattle. She grew up going to that church with her family and was an active participant in the choir. Um, and that's where she really learned to sing. In the late 70s, she would wind up meeting her future husband and bandmate, Tommy Martin, while she was looking for a French tutor to help her with her pronunciation because she wanted to perform um, Ceci Bon like Eartha Kitt. So I initially thought when I was doing this research, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's covering Eartha Kitt. Um, but uh, so she was looking for somebody to help her like learn how to pr- pronounce some French words. And that's how she met her husband. He was her tutor. So um, was he French? He was not, but he he, he spoke uh, French. Okay. And... You know what? Now that I think about it, I'm like, I don't know if he was maybe French Canadian. There wasn't a whole lot on him, but mm-hmm. um, uh, his name was uh, Tommy. And in September of 1979, Tina and Tommy welcomed their first and only son, TJ Martin. And TJ is now like, he's an Oscar winner and an Emmy winner. He's a filmmaker. So he's sort of really come up and he'll be very important uh, later on. So in 1983, Tina and Tommy decided to form Bam Bam, which is their band. The name is an acronym for their surnames, Bell and Martin. It's also a reference to Tommy's childhood nickname because he was always running around causing chaos, much like the ba- much like Bam Bam from the Flintstones. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that was his childhood <laughs> nickname. Uh, so that's where the name for their band came from. Um, In a 2019 interview with the Sonic Mosquito Soup, Tommy explained um, why he and Tina decided to start a punk band in the first place. Quote, punk rock was a natural procession, or should I say a reaction, for a mixed family to embrace. Tina and I were constantly facing adversity and challenges from all directions. People were pushing us to the side, so we figured, why not go ahead and take things to the edge ourselves? It was a natural move that just kind of happened naturally, end quote. Um, So, you know, this is late 70s, early 80s, and it's still, like, very shocking and surprising to see a black woman married to a white man and they have a child who's mixed race. Mm -hmm. Even though it's Seattle, which is considered like this liberal mecca something that tommy and um his son his and tina's son tj will talk about a lot is the just the deep rooted racism Mm -hmm. that is in seattle and is in the seattle grunge scene but nobody wants to talk about it like they just want to be like no 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 it's fine and it's very insidious and it starts to rear its head further into the career of um bam Bam, of bam bam so uh, it's rough okay we'll get there um so they decide to start this band and then they're like oh great we need more band members so they begin posting flyers looking for a bass player and that's where scott ledge uh ledgerwood came into the picture so scott is he is probably one of the most important figures in preserving the history of Bam Bam. 
and really highlighting Tina's story. Um, so he is just like a fascinating character on his own. But in more recent interviews, you'll see just how much like, and again, we'll get into it, but Scott kind of becomes the champion for helping preserve Tina's legacy, which I okay. think is wonderful. Um, so they're looking for a bass player. They find Scott. They audition him. He just really fits like a glove. And the three of them all throughout 1983 begin writing music and they just kept writing nonstop. Um, and then in 1984, they flush out the band with a drummer, Matt Cameron. If you've heard of Matt Cameron, uh, that's because he would later go on to play drums for Soundgarden. And he's oh, been cool. the drummer for Pearl Jam since 1998. Oh, yeah, he's like... Huge in the grunge scene and was in this rock and his roll. First band. This is not his first band, but uh-huh. it's one of like okay. one of the earlier bands that he's part of. Um, and again, both I will say both he and Scott are just like wonderful champions for pushing Tina's story to the forefront of rock and roll history. So in um, in I believe it's 19 yeah in 1984 um, Bam Bam would independently release their very first EP called Villains Also Wear White. This is credited as being the first grunge record recorded at Reciprocal Recording Studio and that's the same studio where Nirvana would later go on to record their demos for their Bleach and Incesticide albums. So Again, Nirvana, like, if you think of grunge, like, Nirvana is kind of, like, the golden child. Totally. They weren't the first. They were not the first. Uh, I think they're probably the band that brought grunge to the forefront. But it's, it's, again, it's so frustrating to find out years later that it was a black woman and her band that Mm -hmm. really created grunge. So in the Seattle scene, Bam Bam was huge um they're considered a precursor to grunge and a major influence which makes sense so when bam bam would perform future members of alice in chains Soundgarden, pearl jam and nirvana would all attend bam bam shows um so they're all in the crowd watching this kick-ass like female-led band um and you can go on youtube and i was listening to it's called ground zero is i think one of their main music videos tina bell's voice is so sultry and full and resonant and just has so much depth to it and you can feel the emotion that she's talking like that she's singing about Mm -hmm. and i think that becomes so influential in, in grunge as a whole that you and even just as soon as the chords start playing, like you just listen to that song, you're like, obviously, this is when grunge was born. Like you can hear Soundgarden yeah. in those chords. Right? And it's uh, I'm just like, duh, obviously, they're the precursor. Um, so you can hear the influence and their sound. There's the muddy sounding guitars, the riffs, the haunting lyrics, everything. It's all there. So aside from Tina Bell's powerhouse vocals, um, Her son, TJ Martin, says that the one thing that really set her apart was her life experience that she brought to the Seattle grunge scene. Um, There is this really wonderful podcast that I listen to called Sound and Vision, Mm -hmm. and I think it's in episode 144. 
they do an episode on Tina Bell and Bam Bam. And they interview both Matt and Scott, uh, prior members of Bam Bam. They interview um, TJ. And you can, I highly recommend it. If you're interested in learning more about Tina Bell, please go listen to it. But one of the things that TJ says about his mom is, quote, where my mom is actually living the emotions that they're performing. She doesn't just perform that on stage. When she leaves stage, she's still a black woman who has to deal with the same fucking shit, maybe even worse than the perception that she's experiencing on stage, end quote. So you listen to a lot of grunge music and there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of turmoil and not saying that blonde haired white guys don't experience pain and emotion. But but what she was hitting on, TJ says, like, his mom never really talked about race too much. Mm hmm outside of her music but in her music you can hear it it's in Mm -hmm. the lyrics like she really she was really dealing with that that need for acceptance or or even like kind of what you were talking about with Dorothy like never being good enough because Mm -hmm. of her race and that is it, it is in it's deep in the lyrics um and so that was something that TJ talked about a lot was that you know the, the pain that some performers were doing, it, it was more of a performance piece, not necessarily always, but it was something they could do and leave on stage yeah. versus his mom. Like, she would get off stage and she still had to come yeah, back to same, it. The same reality she was singing and, and, like, speaking about in such, like, depth and passion was right there waiting for her when she left the stage. Exactly. There was no Ugh. taking it off and putting it aside. It's something that she constantly had to wear. In the late 80s, uh, Bam Bam would go on to perform with their grunge counterparts like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, but they would never reach that same level of recognition. And they were touring with these bands and often opening for these bands, which is wild to me because those members of those bands were in the audience before those bands even formed watching Bam Bam. And now it's like... It, it's it's insane. And so often, Bam Bam was being told, like, you guys were better than the headliners. Like, you blew them out of the water. And they Bam Bam kept getting these promises of uh, getting to be on the cover of rock and roll magazines. They kept getting promises that they would get signed to a record label, that they would finally get the the marketing and the attention that they needed and that they deserved, but it never happened. Mm -hmm. And for Tina, it was, and Tommy, um, her, her husband and the rest of the band, it was really hard to not sit there and go, this has to be racism. Like this has to be because our lead singer is black and she's a woman. Like what, what other reason Mm -hmm. is, is this like not happening? And so they got really frustrated with these constant empty promises. Um, So they decided in the late eighties that they were going to leave and move to London and see if they could try to make it um, in the music scene in Europe. And so they left for London. They left for a few years. Unfortunately, they never gained the traction or the recognition in London either. Uh, And they were eventually, I think, the very end of the 80s, they were deported back to America. And then in 1990, um, by 1990, both uh, Scott had left the band and then Matt had left the band as well. 
Tommy was still part of the band, but in 1990, Tina decided to leave Bam Bam entirely, and she also just quit music altogether. And at this point, she and Tommy had divorced. They were still in a band together, but they wound up divorcing. Um, And at that point, Tina moved and just became TJ. Her son describes her as kind of becoming a bit of a hermit. Um, She wouldn't really talk about the band. She wouldn't reminisce about music. She didn't want to talk about music. Whereas her dad, like TJ's dad, Tommy, always wanted to talk about the band. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, really quick. Was he white? I feel like I... Yes. Sorry if that wasn't clear. Yeah, Tommy Tommy was white and Tina uh, was black. Um, And so Tommy was always like reminiscing about Mm -hmm. creating music. And she just really shut it down and became kind of she became a recluse um eventually she would wind up moving to las vegas because it felt like that was a way that she could get even further away from everything um she gave up music altogether she wound up living in like low income housing where a situation where, you know, whatever you made for the month, you give them 15% and that's your rent. So, oh yeah, living in lower, lower income, affordable housing. And basically she was like, I think she became a janitor. Yeah. According to TJ, she became a janitor at the local church and really just like was getting paid cash under the table um, and sort of cut herself off. So that was after 1990. Was her kid, like, older at this time? Yeah. So he was born in 1979. So he's early. Okay. So he's taking care of himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he he didn't go into it too much in the interview. But um, you get the sense that at this point, he's living on his own. He's Uh going to college. And so they still talk, but they have kind of grown a little bit separate. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though she became more reclusive, um, her and the former bass player, Scotty Ledgerwood, stayed in touch. And every now and then they would talk to each other on the phone. They would reminisce about, you know, they would reminisce about touring um, and catch up on family life. It got to a point where in like the, like around 2010 or so, Scott and Tina started talking about having a comeback for Bam Bam. And... They, the plan was Bam Bam was going to have a comeback. Um, they were going to release a documentary and TJ, her son, would direct it because he's he won an Academy Award for Undefeated, which is a film that he created and he's won a ton of awards for being a documentarian. So cool. So that was the plan. Um, and then that they would write a memoir. However, sadly, in 2012... Tina Bell passed away alone in her apartment in Las Vegas at the age of 55. Oh, my God. It's going to get real bad and real dark. Um, Her cause of death was cirrhosis of the liver. She had struggled with depression and alcoholism later in her life, uh, especially after all of the rejection that she faced in the music scene. TJ said that the coroner estimated that her time of death was actually a couple of weeks before her body was even found. Oh, shit. Yeah. When TJ arrived at his mother's apartment in Las Vegas, all of her belongings, except for a DVD player, a poster, and a chair, 
had all been thrown away. This by who? By the property manager. So they claimed that all of her personal effects were contaminated because she had died in the apartment and her body had been there for a couple of weeks. Oh. So they just threw everything away, um, including all of her writing, uh, which included lyrics, poems, diaries, along with Bam Bam music and memorabilia, videos, all of it just went into the trash and her family was never notified. So all of these... Um, and I can't even imagine that, like, as a son or as a child, like, all of these pieces of your mother are just thrown away. And nobody had bothered to reach out to him. Um, and then it still wasn't until, like, a week later after the coroner, like, she'd been sent to the coroner, that TJ was notified. So he, he was, like, he was, like, three weeks before I found out that my mom had passed away. That's insane. That's so messed up. And it's 2012. Like, it's not that long ago. No. Um, But uh, he and he even said, you know, she had really become so secluded from everyone that no one had any idea that she wasn't okay. Um, Wait, so her... I, you said what her cause of death was. Mm-hmm. Did she die of, like, alcohol? What, like, what they exactly They said that the cause of that? death was cirrhosis of the liver, which I believe is, like, it's like a slow degenerate disease where your liver essentially just stops functioning. So it stops cleaning out the toxins because uh-huh. it's almost like the liver has become poisoned. And so you wind up, I believe you wind up dying from blood poisoning because it's not, uh. like cleaning anything out anymore um so it's a very slow painful death was that caused by anything in particular probably like severe alcoholism is generally what causes that um and she had like later in her life started to drink very heavily um Mm -hmm. as a way to cope with the depression totally yeah so um I'm uh, hopefully I'll get us to a slightly like I don't know brighter <laughs> spot is the right word, but uh, we're gonna get a little rage inducing um, okay. right here. But so like, for decades, Bam Bam's music and Tina Bell's legacy has been basically wiped out from all public records. So there's a really famous book by Mark Yarm called Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge. And, like, I looked this book up. I haven't read it, but I looked it up. It's got, like, five stars. Everybody's like, this is the best history of grunge music you could ever ask for, blah, blah, blah. They do talk about Bam Bam. And there are a lot of documentaries, books, articles on, the gr- like, the history of grunge that never mention Bam Bam. This book does. However, Tina is never mentioned So she did leave the band in 1990, and Bam Bam would continue on past that. But the remaining members would just continue on as an instrumental trio. And they, I think they then wound up forming like a new band that released lyrics, but they were just an instrumental trio for a couple of years after she left. Was Tommy still in it? So Tommy was still in it um, as the lead guitarist. And then there were two other members. Um, at this point, both Scott and Matt had left on for other projects. So Tommy was the only 
remaining member. Mm -hmm. And the thing with it is, like, even though the ban continued after 1990, it's no excuse to cut out one of the founding members, especially since Bam Bam existed for over seven years with Tina Bell at the helm. Um, She was the lead vocalist and she was the primary lyricist. So were they still performing her songs? I don't think they were performing her songs. I think when she left, they went fully instrumental. Oh, got it, got it. Yes, you yeah. can say that. Okay. Um, but that's still the thing of like the influence that she had was on was on bands that already existed before 1990. So her influence started in the mid 80s, but mm-hmm. they just like completely wiped her from that book. But what started to happen in more recent years is that there are a lot of journalists and music historians and fellow musicians who've started to give Tina back her voice. There's one musician in particular. Her name is uh, Om Jahari. She is a Black female singer, also from Seattle, who was a teenager when Tina was the lead singer of Bam Bam. Like, she grew up watching Tina Bell and was inspired by her. And Um has influenced so many young Black musicians today. But the thing that Um is known for is she is the lead singer of an all-female ACDC cover band called Hell's Bells, which I believe they perform in LA every now I've and then. I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so people like Om Jahari, uh, Scott from Bam Bam and Matt Cameron from San- Soundgarden and Bam Bam, they those are three like big names that have really pushed to keep Tina's story um, in the public discourse and are fighting harder than ever to make sure that people know who she is. And there are a lot of music historians and journalists who are using their platform to make sure that people know who she is. And it's wild because I think you start to see a lot more articles in like 2019 and 2020 and 2021 talking about Tina. Oh, Um, I just looked up a picture of her. Yeah, she's like, here's the thing. She was like five foot two and just so fierce. You can watch... Uh, Ground Zero is a great one if you really want to hear her vocals, but there are some videos of her performing live and you watch her and she just has this like presence. Yeah. She's so fucking cool. And you're like, this is what all (laughs) of those guys wanted to be. Right. And you can see she was heavily influenced by uh, The Doors, by Jim Morrison of The Doors, Metallica, and David Bowie. And you can see and even hear, like, the David Bowie swagger. Um, I'm, like, kind of getting, fun. like, Tina Turner vibes with the hair. Yeah, yeah. so she was uh, compared to Tina Turner was a lot. She? And she did, like, look up to Tina Turner, and <laughs> Tina Turner was one of her – and Aretha Franklin was another one um, – who are like her vocal inspirations, but she was often compared to Tina Turner, which that you mentioned, uh, funny that you mentioned that. So TJ, her son actually did a a documentary. I think it's called Tina on Tina Turner. Um, So life comes a little bit full circle. (laughs) Always. Uh, Yeah. But um, so she's definitely getting more attention now, which it's so frustrating that it didn't happen sooner. 
Um, because for such a long time, she was sort of written out of grunge's history. Uh, and again, one of the like biggest advocates for her is the former bass player of Bam Bam, Scott Ledgerwood. He's worked tirelessly to preserve Bam Bam's history. He has a website where you can actually go through and see like all of the times Bam Bam was ever mentioned in the news. Like he's created this online archive. Um, and he is specifically in a lot of interviews that I was reading and listening to. Uh, he acknowledges that deep rooted racism and misogyny are likely the main factors why people have tried to erase Tina's influence from the history of the grunge scene. Um, and this is, it's a very long quote, but I was like, this is such a perfect summary of like who Tina was. So there's a really wonderful interview with both uh, Scott and Tommy talking about Bam Bam. That was from, I think, 2019. And it's from the Sonic Mosquito Soup, which is the name of the media outlet highly recommend um but this is a quote from scott it says quote i recall tina being called the n-word more than once in san francisco on stage in seattle man in seattle she grabbed the mic stand and with all of her 90 odd pounds she swirled it around her head two to three times for centrifugal assistance and smashed both of these skinhead wanks in the front row she fucking nailed them. The first one took the brunt of it and went down. The other caught the final of her swing and just right on the nose. Splat. Tina stormed off humiliated and fucking furious. Tommy dove into the fray with his guitar still strapped on, but the crowd was already clearing out those guys. That was a fucked up moment to say the least. It took a while for Tina to calm down enough to come back and finish the show. It enrages me to this day. Some people had trouble accepting a black girl who didn't conform to their expectations. They'd be more comfortable if she were a soul diva or hip-hop singer rather than a hard rocker. But Tina Bell was pure rocker spirit man. I've never known anyone who lived the rock ethos as genuine as she did. She breathed music. It defined her. It was her life. End quote. That's so sweet. Like, yeah. I mean, horrible that that happened and she was so devastated by it. But like, yeah, it's so sweet to hear them like recognize her and you can just tell how much they really admired her and loved her and are probably themselves pissed. Like, yeah, just the bullshit of it all. Yeah, that's something again that um, Sound and Vision podcast. There's a, a bit with Matt Cameron and he talks about that like. You know, it was hard. He basically says, I think it's, yeah, he like says something to the effect of like, it was hard knowing that we were worth so much and people just would not let us get the recognition that we deserved because of misogyny and racism, like baseline. And yeah. it sucked because like Tina, again, like, Go watch those YouTube videos of her. She just, I think she's that that idea of like a rock and roll star that people want. She just, she's so cool. She's so fucking cool. And the power that she has and her voice is amazing. And people were threatened by that. Um, Amjahari talks about that, like being at shows as a teenager and watching the other 
like other member like other bands basically shoot daggers with their eyes at uh, Tina because they were so jealous of her. She was like the jealousy just radiated off of people. And she was like, and you know, it, it was this weird thing because most people like loved it. Like the crowd would eat it up and they were huge fans. But every now and then you would just see these people that were so threatened by her. Mm-hmm. And instead of just like uplifting her and being excited for her, they were just jealous. And yeah. it's it's so shitty but uh yeah so tina bell the godmother of grunge oh i love it i have like so many thoughts like one if she was living right now she would be an absolute famous loved just like she would be booming if yeah like the girl the woman that i'm looking at right now i could just see her on a stage today and just the crowds would be filled yeah you it's like there are um there's some photos of her, just the way she would do her hair and makeup. I was like, people are still trying to, like, capture that mm-hmm. that same look, that same edge. And it doesn't feel like she was faking it. Like, she just was that, yeah. you know, like, like what Scott said, like, she breathed music. It, yeah. She was rock and roll. You know, it, like, I feel like you said it perfectly or... Uh, I don't know if this was something that was a quote from somebody else in the band, but like probably this annoyance from the grunge community when they saw her and how hard she was like killing it in this like genre and thinking to themselves like one, she's better than everybody Two, she's like doing new innovative things and like doing it well but, mm-hmm. like, three, like, who do you think you are doing this in this space? And yeah. who do you think you are doing it as well as you're doing it in this space? Yes. You deserve, you, like, you belong in, like, the blues, the R&B, the whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. don't come in here in our world and fuck shit up when yeah. it's not your world. Yeah. There's, in that um, Sound and Vision podcast, so, like, the first half is the interview with scotty um uh matt and tj and then the second half is really fascinating they've put together a round table of black musicians who are currently in seattle and they're all from like the rock and grunge and punk scene and they're i didn't look up their ages but they're probably about our age like in their 20s to 30s and they talk about how they will, whenever somebody writes an article about their band, they'll often write like, oh, soul singer, or like they will get described as anything but what they are, which is rock and roll or punk or Mm. grunge. They're like, no, I'm not a soul singer. I'm a rock and roll singer. Like, what are you doing? Like, they are still getting mislabeled because people still don't want to allow black musicians into those spaces, which is wild. Like, if you haven't studied music history, hate to break it to you, but rock and roll would not exist without black musicians. Country would not exist without black musicians. Like most music in in its form today and even, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all of it would not exist in any of those forms without the influence of black musicians, just period. And yet, they are consistently erased from it. And 
and it's it's so frustrating it's so frustrating like mm-hmm. what what okay so one thing i'm just like wondering though like mm-hmm. about this grudge scene like and about seattle during this time period i guess i'm just like confused because bam bam was like doing well they were a big hit like all these other bands were in the crowds watching them cheering them on like it was like moving forward and they were like getting their name out there and then it just like stopped and everybody else kind of kept rising while they stayed yeah i think i'm just like wondering though like was their inability to like progress like progress on a larger scale due to the audience due to the uh environment of seattle due to like labels studio labels record labels like what was it yeah so so scott talks about that and um he's like honestly he's like i think audiences would have eaten us up like they would have loved us but the people in power the people in the suits did not want to see a band with a little black girl at the forefront And then that's sort of like what happened with they kept getting these promises of, oh, you'll be on the cover of this magazine. Oh, we'll sign you to this record label. Oh, we'll give you this. We'll give you this. We'll give you this. And it just never happened. So they never got the financial backing that some of these other bands got. They never got the momentum and their name never got out there really outside of the Seattle scene. Um And so while they were doing really well in Seattle, and I would say even along the West Coast, there was never that any like that push forward. And like with Tina, she just got so disheartened by it and felt like she was fighting a losing battle, um, which is part of the reason why that why she quit the band. And, you know, they they attempted like, okay, screw it, like. America's not going to support us. Let's go to London and see yeah. if we can make it happen there. And it, it was kind of more of the same. Um, so I think at that point, you know, sort of like with Dorothy, she just she couldn't change the thing that was holding her back or that people were using against her to hold her back. And so she just walked away from it completely like um TJ said, you know, his mom would still listen to his to her record. She would still play music, but she never really sang again. She never performed again. Like she, as a musician, completely walked away from it. And that's so sad. Yeah. And just like gave up on it because it the thing that she loved more than anything, just like that industry and that world just wouldn't love her back. Jeez, what yeah. a fucking yeah! Why does the world have to be so evil? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> like... And like, what's so frustrating about that is that like we're looking at two women who were very talented, yeah, hardworking, yeah. like made actual real impacts on the audiences who saw them and loved them. Like they had a yeah. positive reaction from the public, yeah. and yet they were still held back by like the structure of it all, the system of it all. Yeah. Well, I mean, you like, you still see that today, right? Like, like Black Panther. I think so many people were waiting for that film to fail. And then it wound up being the fastest grossing Marvel film. Like it 
destroyed box office records yeah. because that's what people wanted. And then it was like studios were surprised. They were like, oh, what? And it's like, yeah, like people have been wanting an all black superhero film for years. It, same with Wonder Woman, right? Like people want those things. They want um, they they want that uh, representation. They want to be able to engage with media that is that tells those stories but a lot of the people in power who have the money to say yes or no are generally white men so you know like they're like we'll just make a 25th batman yeah let's just remake (laughs) batman again am i gonna go see it yes because rob pattinson is the kind of chaotic energy that i'm here for but yeah, like let's just keep remaking the same shit, which is why I like love social media. I think it's the the bane of my existence, but that's something that I do love is like you get to have those conversations and you know, now that, you know, you you could take an iPhone and iMovie and shoot a film, like yeah. you can get content out there. You can engage with it. Not saying that it's still not difficult, especially for people of color and, you know, marginalized communities, but it's easier to find your community and to reach other people and to share those stories. But I think, totally. you know, yeah. Oh man. Uh, I know it was so heavy. I was like, this will be fun. And they're like, both no, heavy. Story is sad. It's, I know. They're so sorry, both listeners. were heavy and sad, but also like <sighs> there's stories about two women who really helped revolutionize the, the fields that they were in and but again they just get swept away and so I I do think you know it's important that we talk about them too totally and acknowledge those things as like fucked up and horrible and sad as they are it is true and it's real and it exists Mm -hmm. then and now and it exists in the time period that Dorothy was trying to make a name for herself same with Tina, same with people today. Yeah. But I think, okay, here's what I will say. Like, because it is, it's it's fucked up. But I think it is important that we go looking for those stories, right? Go find those stories. Because I, I promise you, Tina and Dorothy are not the only women out there. Find those stories, engage in those stories, like share those stories. Because the more that people know, like, that those voices and that those people existed and have come before them, the more uh, the more you can go, like, no, I am capable of doing this, mm-hmm. the more that it can inspire future generations. So it's – both stories are incredibly tragic, but I think it's important to find those stories and to hear those stories um, and to share them. Oh, well, high five to these ladies. Uh- Go, if you got Spotify, go listen to Bam Bam. Um, There's a little playlist there. Um, Yeah, like go. It's it. You can still appreciate the art that they made. So go engage in it. Go listen to it. Get pumped up. Yeah. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. Fuck women. Yes. Yes. Fuck yes. (laughs) Fuck yes to women's stories. Fuck yes to Black History Month. There's so many women yeah. Men, women, everybody that um, have done some really great things. And I'm happy yeah. that we got to talk about two of those stories today. 
Me too. Thanks for having me. Of course. Oh, Thanks so for fun. bringing Tina. We haven't had a grunge queen yet. That is so <laughs> cool. I freaking love it. I know. Also, like her outfits. I was. I was like, um, hello. How do I do this? Everything about <laughs> her, her makeup. So rad. So happy you came on the show. It was so great. Loved so learning about here. Tina. You did such a great job. Thank you. And yeah, cheers to just fucking celebrating women's lives. Cheers.